for more content. <gasps> it's been a while since we've done this. I know. At this point. <laughs> January was a bit of a light month, but also work and... Um, it's February now. It's it, almost oh, over. Right, yeah. <laughs> Time flies. Time flies when you come to work every day and you don't take a break. What year is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're still living in the past. We're trying to get back to the future. <laughs> yes, we are. Multiple worlds. Got it. So we want to talk about Archive 81. We're going to. We actually have already recorded the episode. And in that episode, we talk about devs, which you guys have just heard. And we talk about this movie called The Empty Man, which is this amazing, what we have called here in the past, what Robert Eggers calls horror-adjacent film that came out that is this sleeper, culty, indie hit, I think. Gabe first brought it to my attention, and I watched it one night, much to my both glee and terror terror yeah i was gonna say jaw droppedness because jaw-droppedness. <laughs> my jaw droppedness because i it was truly um not only just a good movie but like something pretty remarkable reminding me a lot of how i felt when i first watched donnie darko something like something along those lines anyway so gabe's gonna be talking a lot about this today because he knows a lot more about the history behind it but we wanted to pause once again as we continue our journey through Uh, stuff that has already happened that we haven't been able to talk about because we've been so busy staying current. So we're talking about The Empty Man today. It came out in 2020, I think, Mm -hmm. amidst a slew of of other stuff that set it up for no success. And it's a movie that both Gabe and I will recommend, would recommend, to have and will continue to recommend. Yeah, to a lot of people, that, especially that like film, because it's, if you can get beyond the fact that you may be stepping into watching a horror film, it's very much not that at the same time. Um, anyway, wh- how do we even start talking about this? You want to talk about the creator or about what it's about first? What's easier? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, Probably with the creator, because if you find out the story, I think you'll be more invested in the actual story of the film. Because this movie has a story production-wise about how it came to be and yeah. the final version that we saw. That's true. And I would <laughs> love to start with the man behind the film. Yeah. And if any point, if at any point during this cast I'm just rambling, you'll have to recenter me because this is this is a particular film that I care a great deal about. I know, I'm excited. Um I don't like to use the word hidden gem really ever. Yeah. But this is one of that this is that. Sort of like Vast and Night. Yeah. In the, as far as hidden gems go. Uh yeah, so this would be like um, just in terms of production level, like many times that scale, yeah. but also with like the same amount of like, it didn't have much of a distribution network. So anyway, the empty man is a film written and directed by a man named David Pryor, who is, uh, he had never done a feature film before, but he's like, I think he's about, he's uh, in his fifties now or something. Mm-hmm. This is a man who came into the industry sort of in a, in a strange way working in the nineties. And I, I've listened to several other podcasts cause there's not a lot of information about David or his film. Mm-hmm. The um, empty man. Yeah. The empty, his man. film, the empty man, but David came man. to work with 20th century Fox in the nineties and early two thousands, basically as a specialist for DVD extras and special features content as that was booming. He was at the ground floor of that. And one of the key instrumental people who put that whole side of things together as it was that's awesome a thing yeah you said for fox 
Yeah, for 20th Century Fox. Is that what they were called or what they became? 20th Century Fox. Yeah. Is what, yeah. Um, and so he began doing that. He, I, I've heard him say a couple times now through the casts that I've listened to that he was such a huge fan of Alien, you know, the original Ridley Scott film. I've heard of it, yeah. In 79. And he, uh, he had created his own, like, complete score, mixtape sort of thing for the film because you can buy the score, but it's only the music... But he put together everything from external tracks, cues, and everything in between that would be pulled from other films to make like this temp track for this film. And he he compiled it all together in kind of an unprecedented way because there was no internet or anything back then. And so that's how 20th Century Fox kind of got wind of this and started hiring this guy to basically put together bonus content for, you know, everything happening around the change of the millennia so anyway he came to be working with david fincher over the course of the early 2000s ever heard of him yeah he kind of a big deal one of the preeminent directors of what's in the box what's in the box what's in the box kind of starting with uh panic room around those years so right at the front of the uh 2000s if you've ever heard of the movie fight club yeah fight club was huge and a lot of those um you might you were or the st- curious case of Benjamin Button. Yeah, some some millennials and and Gen X people might have a lot, even to this day, of the physical content that that David Pryor put together. Like, for instance, that famous Fight Club DVD issue where it's it's like in a brown bag or something. Oh yeah, I have that. David, yeah, exactly. David Pryor is one is like the, he's to blame. Yeah, he's to thank. Uh-huh. He's he's one of the people that put all that stuff together. Sure. Um, and he began working with David Fincher over the years, and they had a working relationship. And so that's kind of where David Pryor, who had kind of tinkered with other aspects of filmmaking in the past, sort of it put him on that trajectory of being a filmmaker himself. And it's where he got a lot of his aesthetic and style that we will see in The Empty Man. So did he work with Fincher on the on the actual like post-production side at all, or was he just around him? Yeah. I think it's kind of both. Oh, okay. Um, and he would then work a lot with him in the post to set up like the, the the bonus special features that you would have on these DVDs. And he's credited as like on his IMDb as documentary director and that sort of thing. Um, Cause he would like, his mind was the one that made all this extra content happen, like yeah. for behind the scenes stuff and whatnot. So forgive me if I'm skipping ahead over things that you want to talk about oh, uh, as, as his journey to this film. But how did he get the green light to make this movie? Well, I think it was something he wanted to do for years, and he never really just had the money to do it, or the you know the necessary clout, in a manner of speaking. Because uh-huh. even though he had all the connections, he this is like a, a big feature film. I'm not sure exactly how The Empty Man came to be in the first place, but he did make a short film called AM 1200, which I just watched recently as well, in 2008 with Eric Lang. He even had Ray Wise in there. And, oh, wow. uh, a couple other people. So I think there was proof of concept, and you can see a lot of the things in The Empty Man uh, set up in that film. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I guess he just approached 20th Century Fox with this, and they were pretty much on board from the beginning, and they gave him a huge amount of creative freedom. This is probably circa 2015, 2016. Oh, wow. Because they ended up shooting in 2017. I think they started late 2016, but um, it was delayed and most of principal photography was in 2017. Wow. And yeah, he had an unprecedented, or at least for this sort of film, 
because horror films, thriller films, you know, often get uh, studioed to death. If that's if that's a term, studioed. <laughs> I like I like it. Uh, it is now and studioed. Yeah, I, I think the budget is <laughs> is uh, recorded online is like sixteen million dollars. You say sixty or sixteen? Sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. Sixteen million. And so, but he didn't really have a lot of people telling him what to do. And so, as this film began to wrap, we have what was a, an apocalyptic situation for 20th Century Fox, and Disney bought them out, as we all know. Yeah. And I think that was in 2017, 2018. I honestly don't remember, but I believe you. And so, as this film began to wrap, and and uh, David's in post, he began to show this film to what is now Disney, and, and the 20th Century Fox people are either all gone or, or out the door, or like... <laughs> The people that had originally believed in the project, whether or not they like it now, it doesn't matter because it's Disney's it's Disney's thing. And they just had absolutely no idea what to do with this this long, it's like two and a half hour Was it? Movie. It felt like ninety minutes. No, it's it's two and a half hours. I don't remember. And that. it's it's slow and it's meditative and it is It doesn't feel like that at all for me. When I watched oh, really? it, it did not feel slow or meditative. Well, but but I get why you say that. I'm just, I'm saying this. I may be really disconnected because. From horror. No, no, just because I love the movie so much. Like I was, I was so, you get so enveloped in everything that's happening. You don't, you don't care. I, I'm mostly saying these things uh, as a reference to its own genre. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is horror is chock full of 90 minute, you know, slashers. Jump scares. Creature features and paranormal activity sort of stuff. So in comparison there is not a lot of stuff like The Empty Man. Like I said, this is kind of a droney, very Lovecraftian uh, film that pays a lot of homage to... Lovecraft? Yeah, thing like... And and early horror stuff? To style and substance that we love here, which we don't see very much. Now we are, we're seeing a lot of this sort of thing in like the, the surge of what you were saying is horror-adjacent films from yeah. stuff like A24, mm-hmm. where it's not focused on on the thrill of like the jump scare, but it's focused on building an atmosphere of dread and, and wonder or, uh, yes. or mystery. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or in this case, noir, there's a lot of heavy noir elements. Sure. And that's why I say David Pryor pulls a lot from David Fincher. Cause that's like David Fincher is one of the people who set a tone in film in his films that are very distinct and like yeah. serious, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, Disney has this film, and they just don't know what to do with it. They they start like testing it out with some people, and I love hearing David Pryor talk about this hey, part of the process. Here's some people. Let's show them this movie. Yeah, David Pryor. Ha- the way he speaks about this process is hilarious. He has such a disdain for the test screening, uh, yeah. like the studio working. It is. Part. I've been a part of it on both ends, and it's it's horrible. Yeah. It, it essentially butchers the film in one of two ways. He yeah. says either it tells you something is good when it is distinctly not good, or it is telling you that something which is actually genius is. Mm-hmm. And Bad. it's usually yeah. yeah, and it's usually one of those two things because you have a group of people who are just kind of disinterested. They're not. They're not here. You know. They're. They're probably. It's probably not going to find its audience. And that's. It's because it's because they randomly select people who already have predispositions toward their specific genres that they like. Yeah, and so you get this mixed bag of an audience. Half of them probably don't care about the genre that you're showing them. The other half is probably sort of interested, mm-hmm. and there it is. I mean, you, so you get all of those reactions, 
And then all those reactions go to the studio and the studio just wants to make money. Yeah. So they're like, well, we're not going to make any money. So what do we do with it? We then re-edit it to death, mm-hmm. trying to make it a movie that can make money. Anyway, go and on. As, well, as the story goes, they did, and they turned this into a 90-minute cut of a film. And Blood. David Pryor saw it, and he's also on record as saying it was one of the worst things he'd ever seen in his life. <laughs> and it was un- unrecognizable from the film, from the cut that he had done. <laughs> And so I guess Disney was, whoever was in charge of handling this, if you can call it being handled, this process was just kind of exasperated, I suppose, and just ended up giving David Pryor his final cut of the film. And then they had to put it out there. And so they did. After uh, a few years of sitting in a back room, I suppose, or just being you know stuck in that post-production hell, in 2020, right at the front of the pandemic, it was released uh, out into the world. <laughs> For a very limited, I think it was about 2,000 screen. Didn't you say it was like only out for like a month or two? And then it was less than a month, yeah. and it was played around the time that Tenet came out. So I think it was in August. Uh, I actually remember seeing a couple posters for it because I went to see Possessor around that time at one of the open theaters. Because you know this was like mid 2000 or 2020, so yeah, there was like a short time when theaters reopened because Christopher Nolan was trying to save the industry with Tenet. For more on Possessor, you can refer to our Possessor podcast. Yeah. So I remember seeing it. I, re- I remember seeing the poster, but I did not go to see the film because I uh, I did not have a lot of faith in it. There's been a lot of films of this ilk, sure, sure. or at least in terms of the marketing, it was... I was going to reference, there's a couple other films specifically, one of which might have actually came from, D- from David Pryor's pitch to producers. He said there Candyman. were some producers that tried to rip off his idea. And make other films, but there was a film called The Bye Bye Man from a few years ago. There was another uh, pretty disappointing, like for me because I love this mythos. But there was a Slenderman film uh, oh, right. that came out and just tanked and was in its own. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, anyway, that's what I thought this film was going to be. So I did not see it in theaters. It continues to this day to be one of the greatest regrets of my short life. That I did not get to see the empty man on on the big on the big screen. Really quick, it does go to show how important it is. I mean, to actually do homework about the filmmaker and potentially even the the process of production. Because if you knew what you know now, if you knew what you know now back then, it probably you probably would have been like, I I have to go see it opening day. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would have seen it several times. So, but if you, <laughs> it it does help to know the story behind the production process and that's why yeah, but there I was mean, no story <laughs> i know i know there wasn't at the time but what i'm saying is that's why on this podcast we like to tell those stories and yeah. we think they're worth telling because once you know the story of the filmmakers and the and the filmmaker and the production process it helps to bring light and maybe even uh likability for the film or the piece of media that we're representing here you know mm-hmm. anyway keep going yeah, so it it had a very short stint in theaters domestically, and then it was sort of uh, dropped off the map for a while. And later that year, or early next year, it was picked up uh, for VOD for a, I think it was on Amazon Prime originally, for a few bucks you could rent or buy the film. That's when you saw it, right? Yeah, this was before it came on HBO Max, which I think was late last year. And that's when I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it started to... 
at that time of the VOD release pick up a bit of a cult following and people on, you know, those little insular online communities, like, <laughs> like the little subreddits that I visit, that people started talking about this movie. Like it was, it was, as I said, the hidden gem of horror for its time, for its year, sure. you know, 2020. And it's, it's very strange and enigmatic uh, production history. Mm-hmm. It, it only added to the mystique of, you know, what is yeah, yeah. the empty man? The empty man, the empty man, the empty man. Yeah. And so uh, it's only kind of rolled forward as garnering more of a cult following. And here we are two years later, almost two years later. And uh, it has uh, been sitting on HBO Max. And what I think is a, a faithful, because um, I think some of the early VOD releases had some weird stuff with aspect ratio. And oh. David Pryor was a little disappointed because David Pryor also, Cares I should say. About quality. Like he, Fincher does. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's very much in that uh, auteur mindset of he is involved in every part of the process from the cinematography to the VFX to the SFX. I think he did all the sound design himself for uh, AM 1200. Uh, and the editing process, this is a man who has gotten to the point in his life where he lives filmmaking. And I hope he hasn't been <laughs> completely burned out by this. What has happened to his film in this industry um, and I hope he continues to produce more work. Anyway, uh, yeah, HBO Max, I think the release there is pretty faithful to what his vision is for the formatting of the film, and that's that's good to hear. And so here we are. I I got Stephen to watch it late last year, and he, to much to my hap- my my enjoyment or my <laughs> happiness, <laughs> uh, enjoyed it just as much as I did because Stephen does not love the genre of horror as much as I do. I would say... <laughs> I would say that's true. I mean, I don't, I don't love horror, but I do love horror adjacent. I've yeah. come to grow, especially over the course of the last two years since we've been doing this podcast, I've become to grow very fondly of horror adjacent stuff. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, that's where it's at. You know what I mean? Uh huh. I and I, I love both. And there's a lot of you can, you can still have good film that is just like straight horror, like a James, like a Conjuring film, or like you know? Halloween Kills. Don't ever say that. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I little little triggered. No, no, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, but I, I, what enriches this film for me is just knowing like David Pryor's influences and what we are, like the state of the industry today. So I guess now would be a good time to pivot into talking about what this film is, what the Empty Man is. What is it? What What is the Empty Man? I was actually gonna say, should we talk about the cast and the cinematography? Oh yeah. Those? Yeah, sure. Well, let me start by saying this is actually an adaptation of a graphic novel. Oh, is it really? The The source material is actually very different from what David Pryor ended up doing in his film. The story is is very different. Uh, so it's kind of its own beast in that sense. But The Empty Man... A little Hank McCoy action. I guess, I, I'm not sure this is accurate, but I think 20th Century Fox had a deal with Boom, who's the publisher of... Yeah, Boom. And they, they had done other films. Yeah, potentially... And again, Fox no longer exists, but... Yeah, they're now 20th Century Studios. So if you were to see even what you would assume the 20th Century Fox logo, well, you know, which has the, the, the spotlights in the air and that whole thing, Disney has rebranded 20th Century Fox to be 20th Century Studios. So that is the branding you will see from now on. If there is a quote-unquote Fox movie to be released, it will be 20th Century Studios instead. Yeah, and I can't remember if it was this film or uh, Underwater, which is a very mm-hmm. uh, similar uh, production story to this film. 
one of those two films was actually the last film to have the Fox logo, like the the classic 20th century Fox logo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Underwater had a very similar... I think Underwater was the last film that Fox had made before the Disney acquisition, and Empty Man was like right before it. Anyway, uh, the Empty Man cast is mostly small, relatively unknown actors. Yeah, lesser, lesser known. And David Pryor fought with his casting... No, I mean, he fought against the studio with his casting director sure. to cast alongside in the lead. his casting director. Yeah, fought yeah. alongside his casting director to cast James Badge Dale as the lead in this film. Why? Did he like them? Or like yeah. him from previous stuff? Or? Yeah, James Badge Dale is... is, is <laughs> how do you describe James Badge Dale? Because he, he can often be confused, I think, aesthetically with a lot of people because he has like a, a very familiar yes. look. yeah. But he pops up in so many things as... He, he was in Iron Man 3. He was in World War Z. Yeah. He was in The Departed. He's just been in a lot for a long time. He's been... He's like one of those background actors that has like a supporting role that makes sense to put him in the lead because he's been around and he knows how to act. And but he, he does have a face that you'd be like, oh, I've seen him before, but I don't know where, you know? Yeah. Exactly, and it was actually because of a small, short-lived series on AMC called Rubicon that David oh, yeah. Pryor actually ended up casting him, or like that was where he yeah I remember he that. wanted someone, or he wanted James Badge Dale to essentially recapture that energy and and that mystique because he he said about James that James is an actor who because The Empty Man is a slower and more meditative film, you need mm-hmm. someone who grabs you visually in a scene even when there's not very much going on, like. Uh, in dialogue or in blocking. Like, if James Badgedale is standing in a room just going over papers or browsing a Wikipedia article... Or breathing. Yeah, he needs... It needs to be compelling to the to the viewer. And James Badgedale has this quality to him... Yeah. ...that it works for that in that noir... Sure. That was way. something that uh, our film professor used to say all the time. He's like, you need to cast people that just look good and are compelling while breathing yeah. <laughs> like just while being in a room just breathing in a room otherwise you're gonna have a lot of dull moments and i think that is uh a lot of what we see and for a lot of actors today and james badge dill is great yeah and so he's really good at that also moving forward we have breathing i mean uh, a couple other of the actors Mer- marin ireland or marine ireland, it's marin ireland who was in hell or high water uh she was in Homeland. She's done a couple other things. And she mm-hmm. was the mother of oh, right. the girl that goes missing. Mm-hmm. The girl being played by Sasha Fravola. Fralova? Fralova. Who's been in some stuff. She had the role of Will Byers in this movie. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> Both literally and figuratively. Because <laughs> her, her haircut is yeah. like literally the Will Byers cut from Stranger Things. It's uncanny. It's funny. Um, and true. And then there's uh, Stephen Root pops up in a pretty critical role in this film uh-huh a little kind of a cameo it's not a big role but it is like a, he's like a charismatic a, leader yeah he's kind of like the Reli- like, religious leader <laughs> of some sort yeah it plays on he's he, he's the head of the cult podcast <laughs> yeah i wish he was steven root is great yeah and it makes me super excited for barry coming back pretty what soon else was he was he in he's in everything no he was just in something that we saw or, or... he was in Macbeth as uh the crazy guy. <laughs> oh, he was in Boba Fett. He was in Boba Fett too, yeah. Yeah. He's literally in everything. He was in Boba Fett, and he's also one of the voices on Vox Machina, which we're also watching. 
Oh, he's also in... Yeah, he's, he's in everything. He's in Succession. <laughs> okay, let's move on. The younger cast in this film, which is really just a minor plot point, like, even though, even though they are featured prominently in the trailer, it, it was mismarketed in that way. The younger cast is, like, barely in the film, but yeah, they was, have yeah. several young actors like Owen Teague from It, and they have Joel Courtney, who's in Super 8. And then a couple notable names uh, for us, in re- because of recent history, what we've been into, mm-hmm. is... Uh, the people that were in the first 20 to 30 minutes of the film, which is in itself like a short film. Yeah. Uh, and that would be Aaron Poole, Aaron and, Poole. and Evan Jonakite, who was in Archive 81. Yep. As well as The Night House from last year, which I liked a lot. Rebecca Hall's little horror film. Oh, right. Uh, and yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of the bulk of the names you'd recognize from this cast. There's Virginia Cole in there. Yeah, I think she was in the first part too. Robert Aramayo played a small character named Garrett and this is that's the dude who was Ned Stark young Ned Stark he was also in Nocturnal Animals and mm-hmm. he'll be uh in the new Ring Rings of Power Amazon show for Lord of the Rings I'm excited I'm excited anyway that's the cast pretty pretty small and uh but it works extremely well all the actors were fantastic yeah it was produced by Stephen Christie and Adam Friedlander Friedlander and Ross Ritchie, Lion producer Alan Shearer. Uh, cinematography by Anastas N. Mikos, Michos, something like that. Music was Brian Williams and Christopher Young. Oh, Christopher Young. I know him. He did Spider-Man 3, and that's how I know him, because I was really sad when uh, Danny Elfman wasn't coming back for that. Yeah. Chris Young kind of looks like Danny Elfman. Or they, it's like they could be brothers. And Brian Williams, the other composer... Uh, sometimes goes to, and goes under the alias Lustmore, and he's done a lot of films too, like uh, <laughs> First Reformed from a few years ago, which I enjoyed a lot. But there was one other piece of the crew that I thought was an interesting mention, which was the production design, which is kind of a big deal in this film, not the least of which because of the design of the monster. But production was by Craig Lathrop, who we know... Very well, because of his work with Robert Eggers in both The Lighthouse and The Witch. And so he is, I think, a a big chunk of the unsung success of this film. Mm, That's a good point. Anyway, so what is The Empty Man? So what is The Empty Man, The Empty Man, The Empty Man? Like I said before, The Empty Man, this is a film, I think that perhaps as far as like modern horror goes or horror adjacent, this is one of the best films that I've ever seen to deal with in a tactful way, Lovecraftian, both tone and kind of mythology in a pretty direct way. A lot of times Lovecraftian stuff is adapted in a way that it's just about the eldritch monsters or this kind of grotesque aesthetic yeah. or macabre you know, style. Mm-hmm. But really what Lovecraft stuff is about is a sense of palpable dread, dread yeah. and, and, a, and an unknowingness, if that makes sense, you know, like a, and a, a looming pervasive sense of, of wrongness yeah. and... Uh, Surrealism. I mean, that's a really great description, a really great definition. Wasn't that one of the things that you said uh, that when you started checking out Lovecraft Country that it got wrong about Lovecraftian? Yeah, Lovecraft Country. It was like more <laughs> like more overt or something. It's a pretty strange show. I I actually didn't even finish it, but it like I said, it, it deals with Lovecraft in kind of a much more ham-fisted way. Hmm. Uh, it did pay some homage like with monsters and stuff like that, but it was not it wasn't like a Lovecraft story. Like the empty man is a story that is basically 
it's basically a Lovecraft story. It has all the hallmarks of Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, the enigmatic or the strange, mysterious deity. It has the the cult, which is huge, and that's this is what gives it a lot of that noir feeling. It has the man, the main character, who is kind of stumbling down this rabbit hole of strangeness, and then at the end becomes, you know, so enveloped in the plot and and everything that he. A lot of times, the hero doesn't make it out of the story and that's that's what this is essentially i think for the sake of this cast we should just say no spoilers yeah let's do I, that because i think anyone listening to this will either already know what it is or doesn't know what it is at all so they're here to listen f- like for that reason yeah because knowing what it is they could hear about the production history which you guys just heard about and if they don't know what it is then they can leave this with the secrets still intact you know what i mean yeah well, then we can cut that last line, but yeah. So what is, what is the story here? And without giving too much away, because we'll, 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 for the sake of this cast, we'll keep the spoilers out to leave the mystery for the listener in case they feel compelled to go uh, watch this. Which you should. In an otherworldly way. I would recommend this to most film people. Like yeah. anyone that's interested in film or filmmaking, you should probably watch this. Or even if you just enjoy a good thriller, you know, because... Yep. The, the horror... Check both boxes. I, I, I keep using the word horror, but this is more of a noir thriller, I yeah. think, than horror. Horror adjacent. Um, Tonal. But yeah, to talk a little bit about the synopsis without giving too much away, we we open, like I said, with like a 30-minute prologue, which is essentially <laughs> a short film to set up the next uh, hour and a half to two hours, uh, which takes place, I think, 20 or 30 years ago in Tibet or some... Uh, remote location that mm-hmm. introduces everything for the film from the narrative elements to the tone and the style of the film and really just in itself is like a magnificent little short film just wonderful tense horror filmmaking i think in my opinion played wonderfully like the the main guy in that the whole sequence hinges on the performance of aaron Poole, who sort of comes to be possessed by this otherworldly deity thing a lot of this you'd see in the trailer although yeah ni- both gabe and myself would recommend don't watch not the watching the trailer because it it's not the movie at it's all. it's it's not even really about giving stuff away it's that it's just not what the movie is it's, it's not it's not the movie at not all. represented yeah it's uh, insane. and so then we launch into the the bulk of the film which is an investigative sort of story mm-hmm. where we have our main character played by james badgedale who is james lasombra he's an ex-cop <laughs> with a very sad past. Yeah. His family is in shambles, or I think they might be dead. I can't remember exactly. Uh, it, and it's very ambiguous as to like exactly what his history is. And so he gets wrapped up in this mystery involving the disappearance of a, gr- of a group of teens. It might be his birthday. It might be his birthday. <laughs> yeah, you, you've seen this more recently than I have, so you can correct me if I'm wrong about any of this. But he comes to investigate some disappearances. I think it starts with the girl yeah and it quickly becomes like uh, gr- the group of teens follows and they just go missing and this sets him on this path of uh unraveling this big conspiracy with what comes to be known as the pontifex institute i think and there's a whole lot of vernacular and lingo um dug out of great occult mysticism for this film stuff that we might be familiar with from david lynch stuff like tulpas and uh, what is cathexis and a bunch of stuff like that. Just X-Files had an episode about tulpas. Yeah, just real primo occultism in this film. If you're into Good that, stuff. yeah, if you're into that at all, you'll find some some stuff to enjoy here. If you like cults, you'll like this podcast. 
And so there is there is in this film as they introduce more of that through plot elements. There's like this burgeoning philosophy of uh, existentialism in this film, mm-hmm. and that that really drives forward the story of the film as James Badge Dale becomes more intertwined in this mystery and like finding out what happened to the kids and sure. he learns more about like essentially what what the empty man is and what mm-hmm. this whole institution and organization stand for is working toward uh there's this great chunk in the film like halfway or two-thirds of the way through where he ends up in a remote location it's great yeah i think this film's it starts in some city it might be san francisco i can't remember chicago it's some urban area something like that but the, the, the film takes us into this incredible like camp area this woodland remote location which is where some of the best moments of the film take place in terms of like its genre. Yeah. Uh, and we get a lot of understanding of what's happening. I don't even want to talk about it yeah. to like, to, to take anything away, mm-hmm. but it's very compelling. Yeah. The film. So it, it, I dancing around spoilers here. The film moves forward to the point where James Badgedale uncovers through some surreal, uh, series of events. What is happening here? Yeah. And that he he has a role to play in this process. And so he comes to question everything he knows about, um, you know, reality uh, and himself in kind of a... It reminded me a lot in that sense of uh, Scorsese's Shutter Island, um, just making the both the main character and the audience second guess everything that has happened up to this point and moving forward. And yeah, it ends in a pretty conclusive, decisive manner. It... I love the ending of this film. I it does make me wish there's more because there it seems like there is there could be more story to tell. Yeah. In this world, even though I'm I'm pretty satisfied with the way it ended. Yeah, the way that it ends is perfect. You yeah. don't need more, mm-hmm. but it does leave you wanting more, which I just think makes for a good movie. You know what I mean? And I'll use this to contrast some of the other stuff around this podcast, which is like Archive 81 it felt kind of like it was ending to set something more up, but the way that The Empty Man ends is a, is a nice finish, a button on <laughs> the emotional journey of the main character, all of the uh-huh. you know the philosophical existential stuff that it had been dealing with up to that point, and it's 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 kind of a bittersweet ending in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's like a whole discussion around that that we could we could go into, but for the sake of uh, brevity here, f- for the good of our cast and for the sanity of our listener, if there is one. I would have to say you need to go watch this movie if you enjoy anything that you've heard up to this point. I am nodding. I am nodding. Um, yeah, because there's a lot to unpack in this film, both stylistically and thematically. One of the first things I said to Stephen when I was pitching in this film, because I was I was unsure of like how to broach. I don't make a lot of recommendations. Those recommendations that I do make, I make to Stephen because he's someone that will kind of not only understand... Uh, my taste, but um, quality. Yeah, stuff that is kind of a little more highbrow, I guess. Ooh. And for all intents and purposes, The Empty Man is a film that should not have been made. And that's the first thing that everyone thinks about or talks about when they they talk about this film. This is a film that should not exist because of the industry and the way they churn out formula films. Studioed. Studioed to death. The studio system. Most studios. Getting their grubby little mitts in every part of the creative process from pre to post-production. This slipped through all the cracks instead of being studioed. Even though there's a great sadness which comes with this film kind of being dropped and um, executed and left to die. (laughs) Yeah. 
There is uh, for David Pryor, you know, you were yeah, for his career. But this film is basically what David Pryor had intended, I think, from the beginning, and it is beautiful, and it is uh, well done. It is just not something you see all the time, and I can't think of as far as feature films go for what this movie is, like movies like this, what this represents. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything else like it in the last few years. Yeah. Especially not for its length. Like two and a half hours, a lot of people would get kind of worn out through the runtime. Mm-hmm. But every moment of this film, I was on the edge of my seat, compelled to... Keep watching. Yeah, and I was just, I was begging for <laughs> for more. Yeah. And so I'm so happy that it was made, and I really hope David Pryor will do more stuff. That was my question I was going to ask you, because you were saying he's a little, he was really left with a bad taste in his mouth. Yeah. From making this or after making this or finishing it. And I'm curious if you think because of the cult popularity behind this film and, and it, it just keeps growing, the, uh, you know, people who keep watching this and finding it and realizing it's a hidden gem. Do you think that that will propel his career going forward? I, I don't know. It is it is in a weird way, strangely apropos for Dave, for David Pryor, for a man who has made his name and found his place in the industry basically receiving success for the back end, you know, for, for the afterworks, the aftershocks yeah. of a production, working in like DVD special features in the beginning of his career. That's where money was made then. And it's so funny that now he's amassing this cult following. I don't know if he'll ever make a feature again, but he has been finding some work here and there since then in the last couple of years. He's helped David Fincher produce the series on Netflix, the documentary series called Voir, mm. which is like a film, a series of film essays. Yeah. Uh, and he just recently f- directed one of the episodes for Guillermo del Toro's Netflix series, an anthology horror series. Oh, that's coming out. Yeah, yeah. it's this year. Oh, I'm excited and about so that. And so he tackled one of, I think, seven or eight episodes for that show. Sweet. Guillermo did one himself. So I guess Guillermo saw The Empty Man and was like, that was rad help me with this thing i hope he did yeah gosh two two peas man you know yeah. what i mean well i mean just thinking about the people that that david's worked with in the past uh this is and listening to him speak i i love <laughs> like i said i don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts but he doesn't listen to ours that's for sure oh yeah no no yeah i i have <laughs> anyway <laughs> i love listening to david talk because he's very intelligent and he knows not only his shit but he's such a, a film history nerd as well. And those are the people that make the best stuff. It's like, yeah. I lo- like one of my favorite podcasts of all time is that, uh, I think it was the NPR one, where it had Ari Aster and Robert Eggers just going back and forth over their influences. Sure. And it's so... And that was it's, a, as A24 podcast. Oh yeah, it was A24. And it's so fascinating and uh, you know simultaneously saddening because those are the people <laughs> that often get shafted. Yeah. Maybe... David Pryor has a future at A24. Well, that's that's what I was actually thinking while you were talking about 20th Century and, and Disney. I was thinking, why didn't Disney just sell the movie to A24? Or like even the distribution rights, yeah. you know? So weird that they would have kept it and put it, released it. I mean, maybe just because they wanted any revenue that they could possibly get. I don't know. With the I company, want my $16 million back. With a company the size of Disney. <laughs> yeah. They, it, with such a large company corporations some things i think just get lost in the cracks and it was probably like one or two guys super down the food chain who were like oh we just drop it (laughs) they're like "Mm, i don't really like this movie that much so let's just put it on vod yeah and man 20 it's sad that 20th century fox 
has gone the way of the dinosaur because there's a lot of great. There is some good stuff. Production. There was some bad stuff too. But to be swallowed up by Disney is like, Just like the, Disney. Those, these things can't exist under Disney's umbrella because it is a brand. The entire company is a brand that is, uh, you know. I want to have faith that Disney had the right mind to keep certain people at 20th century that made decisions because Disney already has Disney films. They, they're not going to start producing Disney films under the 20th century umbrella, but they are going to still continue to produce films under the 20th century studios umbrella. So maybe we'll get more movies like this or, 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 you know, more adult movies, you know? Yeah. And, and hopefully Disney kept those people over in positions of power or authority making or decision making that can make strong decisions. But I mean, I guess from what you're saying, it sounds like maybe they didn't because, because David prior already went through this. Yeah. 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 I, I couldn't say what the state of 20th century studios is today, but I know that David prior will not be working with them in the future. Probably. Anyway, that is, I get it. The empty man, the empty man, the empty man, the empty man, the empty man. And, uh, yeah, this was a, I'm, I, hopefully I didn't bore anyone. This sort of stuff is fascinating you know, to, to me. both of us, when a when a movie like this gets released, yeah, when a perfect, fantastic movie hits our eyeballs and our senses, yeah. And if anyone has HBO Max, it's on there. You can watch it. HBO Max is probably my favorite platform right now. Definitely rivaling all the other platforms. I honestly thought I was like that when I first heard that. I was literally on the Warner Brothers lot, and they were like, "We have a streaming service coming out." I'm like, "Oh, great, another one." <laughs> But now I'm like, no, it's it's definitely up there for content, and it's putting out some amazing stuff. I'm excited for uh, Winning Time that's coming out soon. It's the the '80s Laker Adam oh. McKay thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that HBO? Yeah, it's on H. It'll be on HBO. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. They keep making good stuff. So yeah, they also had. All They've the, always been leading the like. <laughs> they also had all the like theatrical Warner Brothers releases at home, so they had that you know to edge them out a little bit this past year. But. Which seems like most of the movies, apparently, that came out of the pandemic were Warner Brothers features, like Congress, Godzilla, and Matrix. and I mean, it's not, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a mixed bag. Maybe but. it's just because no one else is doing it, really, except for Disney. But Disney charges you for new releases like a crazy person. They don't do that anymore. They're, everything is kind of switching to like a 45-day streaming release right. after the theatrical release, which is sad. Spider-Man is an exception because it's been doing so well in theaters. Anyway. Spider-Man will just be in theaters until the next Marvel movie. We'll see you. We'll, I hope so. We'll see you next time on the Archive 81 episode. So here's a piece of music from the guy who composed Spider-Man 3. <laughs> <laughs>